What's up, everybody? It is Tuesday, December 27th in this year of our Lord, 2022. I'm coming at you from Los Angeles, California, in this uh, in the United Corporations of America. And uh, it's actually a little cloudy. We're supposed to get some rain here in uh, Southern California. I am Ron Placone. Jordan Sheraton is still on paternity leave, uh, but he'll be coming back, I think, in January. Uh, as soon as we know more on that, we'll be letting everyone know. But we have a pretty awesome show for you today, and I'm going to get right into it because uh, I have a guest here who is on a time crunch. So, uh, so we're going to get our guest in here in just a second. But we got some fun stories for you. First of all, if you traveled this holiday season, Hopefully you didn't travel Southwest. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, the whole migrant story being dropped off in front of Kamala Harris's house. We're going to be talking about that. And the kidnap sentence. Remember a couple of years ago when a militia group uh, tried to kidnap the governor of Michigan? Well, they were just sentenced. We're going to uh, jump into that. But first, uh, we got a little bit of, dare I say, good news. Colin, let's pull up the tweet first really quick here. Um, over in Nigeria, Shell was ordered to pay uh, farmers for some oil spills. And uh, Stephen Donziger was on this case. Uh, here's the tweet here. Breaking in a landmark victory, Shell agreed to pay $16 million to four Nigerian farmers in a case where courts also held the fossil fuel industry legally responsible for the abuses of its foreign subsidiaries. So joining us today uh, is Stephen himself. Stephen Donziger is an attorney who uh, went up against Chevron, and they didn't like that, so they went up against him. Uh, and the fight continues. Stephen, how are you? Thanks for being here. Great to be here with you, Ron. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So most people watching this, I'm, I'm sure already know who you are, but if you could just give people a snapshot into uh, what you were involved with concerning Chevron and uh, kind of a, uh, a Cliff Notes version of everything you've been through. Well, thanks. So I, I work with a team of lawyers down in Ecuador over many years uh, in a lawsuit against Chevron after the company had dumped literally billions of gallons of cancer-causing oil waste into the rainforest and decimated indigenous groups. We ended up winning the case, uh, uh, roughly a $10 billion judgment, historic victory. Back in 2009, it was affirmed on appeal by six different appellate courts, including the Supreme Court of Ecuador and the Supreme Court of Canada for enforcement purposes. Sharon then went after me um, here in New York, claimed the case was a fraud, even though it had been affirmed, you know, by various appellate courts around the world. Um, and in my opinion, they corrupted the judicial process and basically prosecuted me privately for contempt of court and had me locked up for almost three years, which ended last April. So now I'm out doing my thing as a human rights lawyer and environmental justice lawyer. But, uh, you know, I was I was targeted with the nation's first private corporate prosecution. The case is still under appeal. It was, in my opinion, very unfair. But it's a warning sign um, to everyone out there who cares about justice, cares about the climate movement, cares about our democracy, that the corporate capture of the U.S. government now extends to at least some pockets of our federal judiciary in a very direct way. Um, so, you know, we can talk more about that maybe some other time, but I'm happy now to talk if you want about the shell case. Yeah, so so let's jump into that, because dare I say that's actually a little bit of good news, which I'm sure we can all use this holiday season. So, so what happened over in Nigeria? So this is an important case, you know, I try to keep my eye on important environmental uh, legal cases and courts around the world. 
just because I think the legal piece to saving our planet is often overlooked, and I think it's really important. So what happened is um, a group called Friends of the Earth, a really great environmental group, uh, the Netherlands branch, sued Shell, which at the time was based in the Netherlands, for pollution. It's one of its subsidiaries caused to uh, a handful of villages in Nigeria because of a leaking underground pipeline. And this case went on for 13 years, and it just resulted in really a very, in my opinion, landmark settlement where the company agreed to pay $16 million to four farmers and their villages to compensate them for the environmental damage caused by the leaky, leaking pipeline. Now, in the larger scheme of things, and with a company that you know has revenue, revenue in the hundreds of billions of dollars every year, I recognize 16 million might not seem like that much money, but this is really significant for two reasons. One is it will make a huge difference to these communities. I mean, it will improve their situations, their lifestyles um, dramatically. And even more importantly, it creates a really important precedent because Dutch courts um, established that Shell was responsible for pollution caused by its wholly owned farm subsidiary in Nigeria. The first thing oil companies do when they get sued um, in their home country courts by people abroad who they negatively impact is they claim, oh, you can't sue us here because that wasn't us. That was our subsidiary. That's a different company. Uh... And it's, it's just a legal fiction designed to you know, obtain impunity for human rights violations. So the fact that Dutch court rejected that in this case, which resulted in this landmark settlement, is significant not just for the four Nigerian farmers in their villages, it's significant for every environmental campaign in the world that represents people in other countries, usually under-resourced countries in the global south, who want to take on the big polluters in the north, like the Chevrons, the Shells, the Exxons, the BPs. So, this decision in Dutch courts, while it technically only applies to the Netherlands, actually will have, in my opinion, very positive ramifications in countries around the world that um, will take on similar cases. So to me, this is very significant. It's a big victory for the movement, for the planet, for the climate movement. Do you think it's kind of a sign? Because, you know, I'll tell you an aside here, and I'm sure you can speak to this like, like, like to infinite levels but when i uh, i grew up in pittsburgh pennsylvania which is the uh, you know the land of of fracking in western pennsylvania right now and when i was in grad school i did a, a big study on just the fracking industry in the area and i found so many cases of what you're talking about where they actually committed thousands of violations none of which were reported on and what they did every time was they passed the buck to a contractor they're like oh no that wasn't range resources that was this you know this this other subsidiary thing this other company so it seems like that's a common dirty trick throughout the entire oil industry now do you think because of this ruling that's a dirty trick that's not going to work anymore or is going to well, at least not, not work as much you know let's not get ahead of ourselves okay this is one important victory that i think can be cited by lawyers who fight for environmental justice in other countries as an example of how to do it. Now, in our case against Chevron out of Ecuador, 
where we won the case, Chevron made the same argument. They we basically they refused to pay the judgment, which is completely unethical. We then went into Canada and other countries where they had assets to enforce the judgment, to force them to pay the judgment, to force them to comply with the rule of law. And the first defense they came up with was the same defense Shell tried to use in the Netherlands, which is, wait a second, you can't sue us in Canada because in Canada we don't exist. Only our subsidiary Chevron Canada exists. And we learned that Chevron doesn't operate anywhere in the world except in the United States. I mean, Chevron's in dozens of countries operating through subsidiaries. So their argument essentially is a cheap, dirty trick to try to obtain legal impunity for massive human rights violations through some technical feature of the law that is invented. It's just invented by them. And then they try to convince courts in, you know, in the United States and Canada. You know, many of these courts have judges that come out of the big corporate law firms, pro-corporate in their orientation. And, you know, they buy it. And it's, it's really a, a, a terrible thing that a corporation can hide behind its subsidiary to avoid paying a legitimate legal judgment as Chevron continues to do in Ecuador, as Shell tried to do in the Netherlands, but got shot down by courts in that country. This is significant because now the Ecuadorians, when they go into Canada or any other country and Chevron tries to pull the same dirty trick, have a precedent, an important precedent from a very well-respected country's judiciary that can blow up Chevron's defense in our case. So it helps a lot of people. Now, it's not just positive. You know, they will still pull out every dirty trick in the book to avoid paying these judgments. They hate having to do it. By the way, you know, even though Shell paid $16 million, it doesn't feel like a lot of money to a big oil company. Like they hate the idea of it, you know, they hate paying $100, you know, their whole business model is predicated on um, basically, you know, privatizing profits and externalizing costs. And they fight really hard never to pay court judgments because they don't want these vulnerable communities filing more cases. You know, in these cases, when you win them and we won ours in Ecuador, even though we're still fighting for Chevron to comply with that decision. In the Netherlands, Friends of the Earth and the Nigerian villagers won their case. It's inspirational. Like people see it. They get motivated. They get inspired. They want to do the same thing. So the oil industry tries to pull out all the stops, every dirty trick it can think of, to never pay these judgments because they do not want these communities to think they can even win. So this is a big, big time victory for me as I look at the legal landscape across the world. Now, let's not exaggerate the importance of the law. I mean, it is one component piece of a much larger movement. We need campaigners, activism, and stuff in the streets, policy people. But we can't ignore the law either. And we need to use those spaces in the legal world that exist to advance the cause of the climate movement if we want to save the planet. Do you have time for one more? I know, I know you're on a time pressure. Yeah, go ahead. Go one ahead. More. So I know that the spills uh, in Nigeria or the, the pollution that that the oil companies caused, it happened from 2004 to 2007, to my understanding. Um, is this kind of a typical 
timeline that they'll draw these things out for? Like, cause I'm sure they put in every red tape they can, or was there a particular reason that we're just getting to this now? Like what's kind of the anatomy of a, of a situation like that typically? Well, these cases move slowly, not because they should, but because the part of the defense of the companies is to basically, you know, delay them and sabotage the normal legal processes. I mean, you know, what do they have? They have superior resources. They have money. So they pay lawyers and all these corporate defense firms. I mean, Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher uh, is the main firm that represented Chevron in our case. You know, they know what to do. They make money and they just basically delay the legal process. Just understand their goal is not necessarily to win the case. It's to make sure the plaintiff doesn't win the case. Mm. So this goes on forever. Um, that's sort of how they do it. Cause eventually, you know, the plaintiffs lose interest or they run out of resources or sometimes as the case in Nigeria, two of the four plaintiffs died during the course of the litigation. Oh. 13 years is yeah. way too long. And it really shows, I think, how these oil companies with their superior resources are able to delay legal proceedings. They calculate it's cheaper to pay lawyers than to pay for the harm they caused. And they hope ultimately the plaintiffs and the lawyers will give up. And when you don't give up, ultimately you can win these cases. That's, that's the lesson here. But I will say that courts around the world, be they in the Netherlands or the United States or Canada or wherever, Judges need to not let these companies abuse the process of the law to delay the substance of a proper outcome. And we see these long, long delays in these cases. I mean, Chevron's, you know, even though we won, they've delayed paying for now 28 years since the case was first filed. And many people have died, you know, people who deserve no legitimately won relief. So courts need to be stronger in standing up to the fossil fuel industry. Now, I know I'm just saying that because like in the United States, we basically had a federalist society takeover of much of the federal judiciary, including our Supreme Court. You know, so, so there's been a scheme that, by the way, there's a book called The Scheme just put out by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse that documents this in great detail. But there's been a whole plan by the corporate right in America you know, funded largely by the Koch brothers in the fossil fuel industry to take over our courts so they don't stand up to the industry when these cases are brought and these dirty tricks end up taking root and working. So we need a multi-pronged strategy. We need to do these cases. We need to get to courts and fight them. And we also need to understand the relationship between democracy and the climate movement. In other words, we need to work on bringing back our democracy in the United States, which is, you know, really fragile right now, or what's mm. le left of it, yeah. precisely so the rule of law works and these companies can be held accountable. So it's all connected, but I, I will go back to the, you know, the Nigeria court decision in the Netherlands. It's, it's very significant. I mean, let's not exaggerate it. We've got a lot of work to do, but it really can have a positive impact. And by the way, a lot of momentous shifts in the law take place with these little, these little, they get started by these little victories that end up being replicated in different countries. And suddenly you have a movement and momentous shift and not a lot of time, but it has to start somewhere. This is a great start.
Well, Stephen, thank you so much for everything you do. As I mentioned off air, I am a huge fan uh, of everything you do. And I know that uh, I dare say not every attorney in the world uses their powers for good, but you are one who certainly does uh, to the nth degree. So thank you so much for everything you do. And um, Um, I'm honored. And I, you know, we're all doing what we do. And you guys do a great job checking abuses of power in your world, just as I try to do in my world. So I back at you. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Where can people go to, to follow you if they're not already? Okay. So, you know, you, I, I tweet a fair amount about the, the Ecuador case and other cases at S Donziger, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R. And then I'm also, I, I write a lot of little mini essays about the law on Instagram at Steven Donziger. And if you want to really dig in and get involved in our campaign against Chevron, go to my website. It's um, freedonziger.com, um, free, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R.com. You can donate to our defense fund. They're still attacking me, by the way, so I have legal fees. Um, but more importantly, you can learn a lot more about the case. So you can get our case updates. And we have uh, over 100,000 people, by the way, have joined over the last couple of years. So, you know, we're building something and um, please come and, and get involved if you can. Again, it's it's freedonziger.com. And thanks so much for allowing me to say that. Thank you very much, Stephen. Happy New Year, man. Yeah, you too. Talk soon. Cheers. Peace. Stephen Donziger. Go to freedonziger.com. And again, that's S Donziger on Twitter and uh, Instagram. And yeah, he does uh, he does amazing stuff, total basic work. And that was awesome that he uh, was able to squeeze us in. Uh, we got that was our good news, by the way. That was our good news. Um, we got some other stuff happening now. We got the kidnap sentence that happened with uh, Gretchen Whitmore. Um, that was the I messed up that name, didn't I? Here, let's pull up the article. I, I think I messed up the name of the. Um, of the governor there. Let's pull up the, uh, let's pull up the ABC one. Um, yeah. Adam Fox, a malicious. Oh, wait, I didn't, I didn't screw up the name. Why did I, why did I ever doubt me? I'm like, I think I just messed up the name of the governor. Nope. Nope. Gretchen Whitmer. I nailed it. What did we learn today? Folks, Ron, never doubt yourself because you're never wrong. I'm just kidding. I get stuff wrong all the time. Uh, anyway, man who plotted to kidnap Michigan governor sentenced to 16 years in prison. I'm surprised it's not more. But anyway, let's read on. Adam Fox, a militia member who plotted to kidnap Michigan governor Gretchen Whitmer, was sentenced to 16 years in prison on Tuesday. Uh, so let's go ahead and scroll down here. After Fox's first trial ended in a hung jury, he was found guilty in August of kidnapping conspiracy and conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction. Fox 39 faced up to life in prison. So there's his, uh, there's his headshot there. Uh, that's him. That's the guy. He uh, tried to pull off a kidnapping and failed. I'll be honest. He kind of looks like a guy who would first have the terrible idea to kidnap a governor and then fuck that up. You know what I mean? I don't know. Anyway, let's go. Uh, let's see what else there is to this. For his role in the plot to, so this is according to Andrew Burge, the former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Michigan who oversaw this trial, for his role in the plot to kidnap the governor and trigger further violence, he will serve a long-term prison. Uh, responding to domestic terrorism has been a priority for the Department of Justice since its founding. Rest assured, we will spare no effort to disrupt uh, plots like these and hold those responsible accountable. Uh, Fox and another convicted militia member, Bobby Croft Jr., intended to kidnap Governor Whitmer, 
uh, from her vacation cottage near Elk Rapids, Michigan in 2020 and used destructive devices to facilitate their plot by harming and hindering the governor's security detail and any responding law enforcement officers. Prosecutors said the men's goal was to ignite a civil war. There you go. That That's a great idea, guys. Great idea. Let, let's go. Let's go to uh, Elk Rivers, Michigan and kidnap a governor. Why? So we could start a civil war. That sounds like a terrible idea. Well, no, we we, we did our due diligence on this one. We're going to we see no holes in this plan. No holes at all. I'm surprised they only got 16 years. I'm surprised it's not more. Now, I did see a couple things. Apparently, the reason it wasn't more is because they don't they're not so convinced that this dude is uh, is the actual mastermind. Now, is he or isn't he? I don't know. I'm not privy to everything that went on in that militia, but I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that uh, that that none of them are necessarily, um, you know, knocking it out of the park in the logic or reason department. So if they're thinking, well, I bet there might be a more brilliant mastermind at the top. Uh, do you think? I don't know. I have my doubts. But I remember when that happened. I mean, that happened in 2020. Uh, and the reason was was because they were they were angry about uh, 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 they were angry about COVID lockdowns. They were angry that uh, they had to wear a mask, and so they decided, well, we're we're going to kidnap the governor. That's <laughs> that's what we're going to do. We're going to kidnap the governor, and and allegedly their goal was let's uh, start a civil war, which is uh, not a good idea. I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. <laughs> And I'm going to say that's a terrible idea. Whenever people even utter that, first of all, I'll say this, and this is kind of like a thematic aside here. Whenever people on the left kind of say, no, obviously the, these militia people were not on the left, but whenever people on the left start even uttering the idea of, of like a civil war or something like that, to me, that just sounds nuts beyond comprehension. Because first of all, who do you think's going to win? Who do you, if it ever came down to an actual armed insurgency in this country, uh, which of course I'm I'm 110 against. Who do you think? All right, so we have a police force who does the bidding of the powers that be, who have proven time and time again that they will turn on their own people in an instant. We have the most powerful military in the world, who our government would definitely use on its own people. Keep in mind. It was only a couple years ago we were legit under martial law for a bit. So, who do you think's going to win? Who do you think would win in that struggle? And then you have militias uh, like this guy who they're, they're just itching at the bit to kidnap a governor. Who do you think, who would they side with? They're going to side with the cops. So, yeah, anyway, it's a pretty bad idea. <laughs> pretty bad idea from every, on, on every level, on every level. A very, very bad idea. I'm surprised they didn't get a uh, a, a strip, stricter sentence, um, but uh, they didn't. So 16 years and um, it'll be interesting to see what uh, what happens what happens in prison? I wonder if they'll. I wonder if they'll have a, a change of heart. I wonder if they'll uh, concoct some more 
uh, ridiculous ideas. Who knows? Um, I don't really think our prison rehabilitates people, which that that would be a fun conversation topic. Here's another aside, by the way, for you. I heard, I heard, I heard. I can't speak to this, but uh, if you ever get called to jury duty and you're not, you don't want to do it and you just don't get excused for whatever reason, a good way for to make sure they kind of don't pick you is uh, when they ask you the question, like, do you think that our justice system rehabilitates people? Say no. I mean, first of all, if I'm answering that question, honestly, my answer is no. I do not think our prison system rehabilitates people. I think our prison system is just a way to get uh, slave labor because that's what it is. They, they get labor from people. They pay them nothing or a dollar a day. And we have a for-profit prison system. So we have a demand for the prison labor and we have a demand for prisoners themselves. It's a complete scam. That's why we have the largest prison colony in the freaking world. That's why. Now, all right, sorry, we're kind of diverting. <laughs> we're, we're diverting here. We're talking about the injustices of the prison system. Uh, now, to be clear, in this case, these people need to be uh, punished for what they did. But, uh, but yeah, it's, um, I, I do not think our prison system rehabilitates people is, uh, is my point. So I don't think there's any hope for rehabilitation um, for the, these people who just got sentenced. And if you want to get out of jury duty, you could I, my, my plan, if I'm ever like legit in the uh, in the court and they're they're picking, first of all, I'll mention as often as I can that I have a master's degree. They don't like that. They don't like any higher education degree, but especially nothing beyond a bachelor's. No, I don't know why. I, I don't know why they don't like that. Um, I, I guess they think like you might overanalyze something. Which I think is, uh, I don't know. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty, pretty lazy way of thinking. I, I think that just because you might have a master's degree, it doesn't make you any, uh, it doesn't make you any smarter than anybody else. I mean, some of the most underwhelming people I've ever met, I've, I've met in graduate school, um, and some of the most intelligent people I know barely finished high school. So, so it's not like it's a monolithic thing, you know. It's not like you get what I'm saying. Uh, I also know some brilliant people with PhDs. I, I mean, you know, you get the point. But um, but anyway, so they got sentenced. And um, now I want to take a quick diversion here and do something a little bit different. Uh, this happened a few days ago. You probably heard about this already. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit before we get to uh, the, the main story today, which, of course, is the airlines. Uh, I wanted to talk for a hot minute about Franco Harris. Um, Franco Harris, for those of you, you probably already know because this happened a little while ago. But Franco Harris passed away, um, I think it was about a week ago now. I think it was December 20th was actually the day he passed away. And Franco Harris was uh, a Pittsburgh Steeler, most famously. He was known for the Immaculate Reception which was uh, is still lauded as the best play that ever happened in the history of the NFL. Now, I know we don't really cover sports much on this show, and I, as an individual, don't really cover sports at all. And if I was going to, it would be more likely to be hockey because that's the sport I like the best. So you might wonder, if you don't know a lot about the guy, why am I talking about Franco Harris? I mean, that's sad that he died, rest in power, but why is Rod talking about him? Well... Not everyone realizes this, but Franco Harris was a lot more um, than just an incredible NFL player. Not that that, I mean, that's a lot in and of itself, 
But after Franco Harris retired, now I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. After Franco Harris retired, he didn't leave Pittsburgh. He liked it there. He wanted it to be his home. So he stuck around. And he was a huge community advocate. He did so many things for the city. He did so many things for kids in school. And uh, he was an outspoken guy. And we're going to show you a couple things. Uh, pull up the headline um, from CBS News, Colin, when he took a stand against the KKK. So here's Franco Harris. Franco Harris took a stand against the KKK outside of the city county building. This was in 1997. Uh, we'll read uh, a little bit here. Not all of Franco Harris's heroics were confined to the football field. There was also a little known but uh, valiant stand he took in defense of the city of Pittsburgh against the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, so in April of 1997, he had retired from the NFL. He had been long retired at this point, but Pittsburgh remained a city. When the courts determined the KKK could hold a rally at the city county building, he camped out this out on the steps ready to turn them away. Franco Harris also protested against the Iraq war. He stood up against the NFL, uh, owners when he had to, uh, here's another thing. Uh, pull up the, uh, Tom Morello tweet, Colin. I want, I want people to, to see that. He was an outspoken social justice guy. Here's what Tom Morello had to say about him. Rest in peace, Franco Harris, a hero on and off the field. Franco's Italian army will be waving our terrible towels tonight in tribute to a great man. Um, now, here's another thing about Franco. So he protested the Iraq war. He protested against the KKK. Um, he protest. He supported a lot of great causes for kids in schools in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Another thing he did. Now, Franco Harris went to Penn State. And of course, there was that um, horrible, horrible tragedy that had been plaguing Penn State for years and had finally come to the surface concerning uh, Jerry Sandusky and child abuse. And, and that was a, a very difficult moment for anybody uh, affiliated with the Penn State community. You know, even though I grew up in Pittsburgh, I, I, you know, I didn't have any ties to Penn State or anything like that. I didn't go there. But, um, you know, I could tell you, as somebody who was nearby, um, there were some people in the Penn State community, their response to the whole thing was uh, absolutely disgusting. If we're being honest, it, it was truly sickening. And all they really gave a shit about was their football team. They didn't care about these victims or anything like that. And uh, it was uh, terrible. But of course, that was far from everybody in the Penn State community. And there were many, many people who also wanted who wanted justice and who were outraged and who were um, you know, very, very, uh, ashamed of that and wanted to, um, uh, and wanted justice to be served. And that's not an easy thing to do when an institution that you care about, um, makes a big misstep like that. And, and a misstep is, is a gross understatement for what it was, you know, but sometimes you really got to do the right thing and say, Hey, you know, even though I have a lot of love for this institution, this is inexcusable. What happened is inexcusable. Which side do you think Franco Harris was on? Pull up that uh, pull up that last tweet, Colin, the uh, the Kevin Horns PSU tweet. Uh, and, and pull up that photo, please, if you could. So uh, I was just reminded of Franco Harris's uh, Tenement Square moment. This is uh, Kevin Horn, someone affiliated with PSU. Uh, when he blocked the vans of Penn State's trustees from fleeing after another meeting full of shame and ineptitude in 2012. So a bunch of trustees were trying to flee a meeting. Um, and here, if you can go back to the prior photo, Colin, here's a bunch of people demanding accountability. A bunch of people are, are, are demanding accountability for what happened. 
They're trying to flee. They're in that van trying to flee. Franco Harris, somebody who is a huge public figure in the area, stood there to block their way. That's a good dude, folks. I, I mean, really, like that's that's a good guy. There's no getting around it. That is just a good guy. And uh, I'll tell you something else on a personal level. Franco Harris taught me how to properly wear a bike helmet. One of the many, many things Franco Harris did that most people didn't know about unless you lived in the city of Pittsburgh. Because, again, he was one of those guys who did good things because he wanted to, not because he wanted a pat on the back or not because he even wanted media attention. He didn't care about any of those things. He was just a good dude who wanted to help out his community. He would go to grade schools in the area and teach kids how to properly wear a bicycle helmet and teach kids about the importance of bike safety. Uh, and I remember, I, I forget what grade I was in, uh, but I was young. I, I was definitely, I, I want to say I was like maybe eight years old, something like that. But Franco Harris came and he taught us the importance of bike safety and how to properly wear a bike helmet. So rest in power, Franco. Thank you so much for keeping me safe on a bike for many, many years as a child. And for what it's worth, I've never forgotten my bicycle helmet and I never will rest in power. Uh, all right, let's move on to Southwest Airlines. <laughs> Hopefully you didn't travel Southwest, folks. Uh, the holidays are always, uh, always, always a very, very stressful time to travel. But boy, if you did travel, hopefully you didn't go to Southwest because they had to cancel over 70% of their flights. So keep in mind, Southwest had been making record profits. Um, but they're overworking. I mean, so many people in the airline industry, not just with Southwest, but for all the airlines, they're overworked. Um, they're 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 not safe right now. They're not safe right now because there's no protocols whatsoever on airplanes. So people are getting sick. People are getting COVID. They're having to miss work because of that, obviously. So here's what's going on. Congress is looking into this. Let's go to the political piece first. Congress and the administration is going to probe Southwest holiday travel meltdown. Congress, along with the Transportation Department, will scrutinize Southwest Airlines for thousands of flights that have been canceled since the holiday weekend due to bad weather and cascading internal technical problems. So 70% of its scheduled flights. Largest scale event people have ever seen. In a statement, DOT said it will examine whether cancellations were controllable and if Southwest, and we're going to get more to that in a second here, by the way, and if Southwest is reimbursing and reimbursing or accommodating customers according to its customer service plan. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who we're all wondering what the hell he does, by the way, when there was a supply chain crisis, he did nothing. He, he, he was nowhere to be found. Um, he was on He was on paternity leave for a good bit of it. Which, you know, I'm all about people going on paternity leave. I think Pete Buttigieg should be able to go on paternity leave. What pisses me off, though, is that Pete Buttigieg fights for the types of policy that prohibits other people from having paternity leave. That's my freaking problem. I'm not mad that the guy's going on paternity leave. He should be able to do that. But it really sucks that he fights for the types of policies that prohibits other people from being able to do what he's able to do. And it also sucks that even beyond that, he was just completely MIA. Uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg said he'll have more to say later Tuesday. Uh, before we get off this story, we're, we're going to go to his Twitter account. Uh, we're not going to do that yet, but we're going to go to his Twitter account just to see if he has had more to say. Because this is on this is 
this is happening in real time. Let's see if he has more to say. Now, here is something that the U.S. Department of Transportation tweeted where they said that uh, U.S. Uh, US DOT is concerned by Southwest's unacceptable rate of cancellations and delays and reports of lack of prompt customer service. The department will examine whether these cancellations were controllable. Now, pull up the uh, Scott Keyes tweet, please, Colin. Um, now, this is why this is important, why this is big. This is from uh, Scott Keyes. Southwest is among the airlines that has promised to pay for stranded passengers, meals, hotels, taxis, but only when cancellations delays are controllable, i.e. not because of bad weather. So the Department of Transportation is looking into this and they're going to say, is this controllable or wasn't it? Now, obviously, Southwest is going to say, oh, it was because of the weather and this and that. And there has been freezing temperatures. I know that throughout the country, there has been very, very freezing cold temperatures. I'm not like a, an air travel expert here. I don't know. I know that like when it gets cold, they like de-ice the wings and stuff. Is there a certain level of cold where they can't take off at all? I'm assuming there would be what that is. I don't know for sure what let you know what safety measures exactly they have in place. I, I'm not an expert on that. Um, but I do know that a lot of this was because they were just completely unprepared. And this isn't the first time something like this has happened. And again, uh, they acknowledge this in some of the articles that they acknowledge that there's a lot of staffing issues going on. Well, why is that? It's because people are freaking sick. So uh, let's go to the uh, the photo of all the, the tweet that has all the luggage, Colin. Let's go to that. It's the Angie Andrews tweet. So check this out. Let's go ahead and look at that. Yeah, check this video out. Look at all that. That's all the luggage. That is all the luggage just going everywhere. And it's it's just stuck there. They're just stuck there. Wow. That's like as far, it just keeps, so those are all people that didn't get to their destinations. And I know that at one point they were just telling people, hey, go to, go to try to find your luggage. So imagine you're just, no, this is, it looks like this is in Tampa Bay. That, that size is Tampa Bay there. Imagine you're just stranded. You're not getting to your destination, whether your destination was to leave Tampa Bay to go somewhere else or whether you're, um, you know, trying to get somewhere from Tampa Bay, wherever it is. I guess, obviously, if Tampa Bay is your final destination, you're just going to get your luggage to go home. But imagine that. They're just like, hey, man, try to find your shit. And you're just screwed. That's a freaking nightmare. Let's go back to the political article. I, I want to uh, I want to highlight this article uh, or excuse me, this paragraph. So uh, Maria Cantwell, chair of the Senate Commerce Committee on Tuesday, said her panel plans to look into the root causes of the meltdown and its impact on travelers and noted that Southwest problems over the past several days go beyond weather. So here's something Cantwell said. Many airlines fail to adequately communicate with consumers during flight cancellations. Uh, Cantwell said in a statement, consumers deserve strong protections, including an updated consumer refund rule. Last month, Cantwell and Ed Markey and Richard Blumenthal asked DOT to increase the kinds of compensation um, that are legally entitled to for delays or cancellations uh, that are the airline's fault. Uh, a spokesperson for Southwest said the airline has been in touch with Buttigieg about the problem and referred to a statement made on Monday that it is rebalancing airline operations to rectify the issue. Though the problem began over the weekend, they have since snowballed drastically. 
The airline has canceled roughly 70% of its flight for Tuesday, another 60% for Wednesday in an attempt to recover. According to flight tracking service, uh, Flight Tradar 24, more than 5,000 Southwest flights have already been canceled. 5,000 flights. So here's what else they had to say about this. Um, Continuing challenges are impacting our customers and employees in a significant way that is unacceptable, the airline said. We're working with safety at the forefront to urgently address wide-scale disruption by rebalancing the airline. This part is, is the tell here. You ready? And repositioning crews and our fleet ultimately to best serve all who plan to travel with us. Let me read that again. We're repositioning crews in our fleet ultimately to best serve all who plan to travel with us. What's that code for, folks? That's code for they don't have enough people. They don't have enough people working. And it's probably a combination of they don't want to hire enough people. They don't want to pay enough people. They want to overwork and, and price gouge and, and exploit people as much as they can. And... There's nothing protecting these workers. So people are getting sick. People are getting COVID. They're getting sick. Because there's there's no protection measures in place at all. And you're on a freaking plane. You're in a germ vacuum. And they ain't doing nothing to protect anybody. So that's what's happening. And they're just looking out for their short-term profits. They're going to try to do everything they can to make sure that they don't have to compensate anybody anything. They're going to do everything they can to try to deflect the blame, to try to say that all of it was under their control or out of their control, even though I'm sure not all of it was. I'm sure some of it was, sure. I'm, I'm sure that there's some factors that were, in fact, out of their control. There's been some, uh, you know, some really brutal weather the past, uh, you know, this holiday season. So I'm sure some of it does fall into that category, but I'm sure a lot of it doesn't. I bet not all of it does. But this is what happens when you completely have no protections. The airline industry has gotten whatever they want. They have been bailed. And keep in mind, throughout the pandemic, they were bailed out countless times. They had to promise not to, uh, not to lay people off. They did anyway. Nothing was done about it. No one held them to account. Pete Buttigieg has done nothing to hold them to account. The only thing Pete Buttigieg has actually pushed for was to privatize our entire road system. That is the only thing Pete Buttigieg has gone to the mat for the entire time he has been Secretary of Transportation. When we were having uh, logistic crises, he did nothing. When it comes to protecting airline workers, he has done nothing. When it has come to holding the airlines to account, he has done nothing. When it's come, when it has come to uh, holding them financially responsible for all the money that they were just given, he has done nothing. No one has done anything. They have gotten everything they want. They get to dictate health policy too, because guess what? They were saying, hey, let's get rid of all mask requirements because people don't want to wear a mask on planes and we want more money. They're getting record profits. They're price gouging consumers and they're exploiting their labor force. And now they just screwed tons of people out of their holiday travel. And they're going to try to get away with not compensating anyone. And by the way, it's not just Southwest. 
It's, it's all the airlines are guilty of the same thing. Some are worse than others, sure. But they're all guilty of the same things. And, and you're really rolling the dice. I mean, I mean, travel in general has been terrible. It, it's been absolutely terrible in the, in the past, like, year or so. And it's getting, it's, it's getting worse and worse. I, I mean, traveling during the holidays is always stressful. I, I think we could be entering a time where, where this is literally the new normal, where, where it's just a dystopian nightmare traveling during the holidays at all. So before we, before we switch uh, to uh, another topic here, call it, let's go to Pete Buttigieg's Twitter. Let's just go to his live Twitter. He said he's going to have more to say. Let's see if he has had more to say. It's later on Tuesday. This is happening in real time, folks. It's almost 6 p.m. out east. So let's see if Pete Buttigieg has had more to say. There he is. Uh, here, wait. Don't go too fast. Uh, <laughs> so this is his pin tweet. Uh, all right. All right. He's, he's just saying he got the gig. All right. Scroll down. Go ahead. Oh, this is his last tweet. His last tweet was on uh, December 25th. Wishing people a Merry Christmas. Gee, did he say anything? Here, here, go go down a little bit. What else did what else did Pete Buttigieg have to say? Grateful for transportation. Oh, this is where he uh this is where he uh was happy that a strike had been crushed. Remember, remember he made Jake Tapper look like a freaking journalist. Even Jake Tapper was grilling him on the railroad strike thing. And of course, he he just gave like a freaking press release from the Biden administration. Uh, grateful for transportation workers, even though I'm, I'm, you know, running cover for the government crushing their strike across America who are away from their families today, working through ice, wind, snow, and freezing temperatures to help people get, uh, to help get people in packages where they need to be. So, well, railroad workers are grossly understaffed and they're working 80 hour weeks. They're on call pretty much all the time, have no sick time and no vacation time. Uh, you could sleep easy knowing that Pete Buttigieg is grateful. You you get you get Pete Buttigieg's gratefulness. So I guess Pete didn't have anything else to say. Let, let's hear. I'll just Google it right now. I mean, he's not tweeting anything. Although I, I guess I, obviously there's more modes of communication than just Twitter. So uh, let's see if Pete Buttigieg. I'll go ahead and Google Pete Buttigieg Southwest. Let's see if he's saying anything in real time. Uh, here's something from the Hill. This is 25. Uh, this is 25 minutes old. So uh, here, Colin, let me uh, let me send this to you over in the private chat. You can pull it up. We'll read it in real time. Let's see. Uh, let's see if what, what else Pete Buttigieg has to say. Apparently, he has things to say. Let's see what he has to say. We'll we'll do this right now in real time. It's happening live, folks. Uh, this is from the Hill. Uh, Do you get it, Colin? So uh, Judge speaks with Southwest Airlines CEO amid mass cancellations. So that that's good. He's starting out with an unbiased source, talking to the CEO first. Uh, transportation secretary, although I guess, well, I guess in this case it does kind of make sense to talk to the CEO. But anyway, uh, transportary, transportation, transportary, <laughs> transportary, uh, transportation secretary, Pete Bull to judge, spoke Tuesday with the head of Southwest Airlines. Booty Judge spoke with Southwest CEO Bob Jordan. That sounds like a made up name. Two first names. I bet that's not that guy's real name. Anyway, Bob Jordan, amid customer outrage at the airline, the, the Department of Transportation said in a statement. Uh, so here we go. This afternoon, um, 
The agency noted it would take further action if Southwest fails to provide required recourse to passengers. This afternoon, Secretary Buttigieg spoke with the CEO of Southwest Airlines and conveyed that he expects the airlines to live up to the commitments it has made to passengers, including providing meal vouchers, refunds, and hotel accommodations for those experienced significant delays or cancellations that came up about that came about as a result of Southwest's decisions and actions, the department said. Southwest, as all airlines, is also obligated to provide a cash refund. They all airlines try to never provide a cash refund. Good luck with that for passengers whose flights were canceled and, and decided not to travel. Buttigieg also spoke to union leaders who represent Southwest pilots and flight attendants, some of whom were also stranded and forced to book hotel rooms after cancellation. So Southwest, we're hoping that they look out for passengers. They're not even looking out for their own employees. They're leaving their own employees stranded. We're hoping that they look out for passengers. Um, he also conveyed to Southwest CEOs, oh my God, that he expects Southwest to do right by their pilots and flight attendants and all their workers in the situation. Uh, the department indicated it would continue to work with Southwest to make sure the airline does not allow a situation like this to happen again. Did he write a strongly worded letter? Did he threaten a bad Yelp review? What all did Pete Buttigieg do? It, you know, I don't hear anything about potential consequences. They're literally just saying, well, I hope you guys do the right thing. And what if Southwest doesn't? What's going to happen then? I'm going to go out on a lurk and I'm going to say nothing. I'm going to say that Southwest is going to do as little as possible to avoid a PR nightmare. And no matter how little they do, Pete Buttigieg is going to do absolutely freaking nothing because he is just a blank corporate suit who has a job he has no qualifications for whatsoever. He has no qualifications to be secretary of transportation. He was just handed a gig because he did a good job and screw it over Bernie. He was part of the 2020 clown car that was all there to screw over Bernie so they could basically shove Biden down everyone's throats and then make good on all the people who helped make it happen. And Pete Buttigieg was a willing participant. He knew exactly what he was doing. And the thing about Pete Buttigieg is that he actually knows better. That guy has known better since he was 18 years old. Pete Buttigieg is a very intelligent person. He's very intelligent. When he was 18 years old, he wrote a freaking essay talking about how if you want to play at the easy street, you just do what the DNC tells you to. If you want to play it the hard way, you follow the path of another guy named Bernie Sanders. He wrote that when he was 18. No, I'm certainly not suggesting that everyone needs to have the same principles from the age of 18 to the age of, uh, you know, 35 or whatever. People grow, people change. I get that. But I bring that up because it shows you that he knows better. He knows what he is doing. He knows that he is taking the ticket to Easy Street by appeasing to the people in the wine cave. And he knows that it's not the right thing to do, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care. So whatever he tells you, well, Medicare for all is blah, blah, blah. No, he knows that Medicare for all is the right thing. That's why he used to say he supported it back in the day. When he was trying to build a following, he claimed he supported Medicare for all. He even, he even, he even uh, testified about it on Twitter once. Then all of a sudden he got enough power. Now he's not for Medicare for all anymore. So Pete Buttigieg is, is, is a prime example of somebody who totally knows better and is doing the wrong thing anyway. And we're counting on that guy. 
to hold these predatory airlines accountable. The airlines who have no obligation to do anything. They have been handed a blank check for years. They did not keep what measly promises they made. They operate terribly because there are no protections for consumers because all those protections have been gutted and gutted and gutted over the years. They exploit their labor force. They exploit their pilots. They exploit their staffs. And they don't provide any protections because they don't want to let go of any short-term gains. So they'd rather make their workers sick than have any basic protections for people. So I, 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 I really feel like this is the new, this is just the new era we're in. And I don't see this changing or getting better because nobody will hold these companies accountable. No one will hold the airlines accountable. And you know what? The, the predatory nature of the airline companies goes far beyond. It also goes into uh, climate change. Because again, Wall Street, they're just focused on their short-term gains. If we put a finish line on fossil fuels, if we said, hey, guess what? Here's the finish line. After this, you're freaking done. I guarantee we would have a plane that flies without fossil fuels available for commercial use like that because they'd all be racing to get there first. We've already flown a plane uh, that's flown without fossil fuels. It's already freaking happened. We have the ingenuity. We just don't have the will. You know why? Because they're all focused on the next quarter. None of them want to let go of their short-term gains. That's how Wall Street works. They don't want to let go of their short-term gains. So you have to take away their profit motive. That's why, unfortunately, there needs to be a top-bottom solution for climate change. I'm not suggesting don't do everything you can as an individual. Of course, it's awesome to compost. It's awesome to recycle. It's awesome to fly less. It's awesome to do everything in your power to the best of your ability. Those are all good things. But if we don't have some kind of top-bottom solution, the reality is it's going to be for nil. It's going to be for nil. Uh, so that is irritating. That is freaking irritating. Um, but we'll see what happens. I, I have a feeling next to nothing next to nothing and uh you know keep this uh this incompetency of pete booty judge in mind whenever they try to shove him down our throats uh for president which they will they will they'll shove him president or vice president they're gonna shove pete booty judge down our throats again uh all right let's go to uh kamala harris last story of the day then we'll get to the rest of the chats um so that actually this is more texas than kamala harris but uh, on Christmas Eve, the White House uh, has responded to, on Christmas Eve, a bunch of migrants were dropped off uh, in front of Kamala Harris's residence on Christmas Eve. So White House condemns Texas governor after migrants were dropped off outside of Kamala Harris's house. This is from, uh, this is from Business Insider. Abbott abandoned children on the side of the road in freezing temperatures. The White House condemned Governor Greg Abbott of Texas after busloads of migrants were reportedly dropped off outside of Vice President Kamala Harris's residence in Washington, D.C. on one of the coldest Christmas Eves on record. Governor Abbott abandoned children on the side of the road and below freezing temperatures, said a White House representative. Uh, they described this. This was this cruel, dangerous and shameful stunt. Now. This has been going on where in Texas and in Florida and in other places, they have just been taking um, uh, migrants coming to the borders 
and they've just been busing them to uh, uh, blue states. They're, they're, you're going to go to blue states. Uh, and this is just a political, um, this is just an evil political prank, basically. They're basically being like, oh, well, we don't want to deal with them. But since you're not, you know, since you're not uh, as xenophobic as we are, you could deal with it. And so here's the interesting thing here. Uh, let's go back to the article here. Three buses filled with more than 100 migrants arrived from Texas on Saturday to the nasal uh, naval excuse, nasal. I said naval. <laughs> to the Naval Observatory where Harris and second gentleman Doug Emhoff live. This is interesting. A mutual aid group that has for months been welcoming these migrants said the buses were sent by the Texas Division of Emergency Management. Volunteers coordinated transportation, temporary housing, and food for the migrants. I bring this up because I feel like this whole thing is a snapshot of what the United States is, where we have a government actively working against its people. You have uh, Wall Street Team R, who is just bussing migrants to other areas in, in, a, in a cruel, vicious political stunt. Then you have Wall Street Team D, who's just wagging their finger at it, being like, look at this political stunt. That's not very nice, but they're doing nothing. And then you have mutual aid groups. Who are the mutual aid groups? We, the people, are the mutual aid groups. And they're actually helping these people. They're providing them with food and shelter. That's where we're at as a society. We are all we have. And without extensive amount of mutual aid, uh, a general strike will not be possible. Without extensive amount of mutual aid, our entire society is just going to collapse. That's why, I mean, it, it's so important if you can, please try to get involved in mutual aid efforts in your neighborhood. If you can ever give uh, a little bit of money or food or, or donate clothing. I know I know the, the, the main mutual aid effort in my neighborhood, they have an Amazon wish list. Now, I don't like Amazon. I try to avoid it as much as I can. But in this case, it's easier for them to just have a wish list where they can just, you know, register for exactly what they need to help people and you can just get it for them and then they know that they have something. So, you know, in this case, uh, the good outweighs the bad and I use Amazon for their wish list. That's one of the few situations where I actually do use Amazon. I try to avoid it as much as I can. But in this case, again, I, I think the, uh, the, the good outweighs the bad. Uh, if you can get involved in any efforts like that, please do so because it is so infinitely important. And, you know, keep in mind, the people who come to our borders, they're desperate and they don't have a choice. And I bet you, I bet you they wish that a different border was closer to them. I bet you if they could pick, they wouldn't pick the U.S., but they're climate refugees from places in South America. Uh, or they're, they're, they're refugees because of our uh, coups in foreign policy. We actually have a net zero immigration across the border. The wall is not to keep Mexico out. The wall is to keep us in, folks. All right? The people who are coming here, they're absolutely desperate. In fact, you got more people crossing the border to Mexico from the U.S. because they're living there. Because they're like, wait a second, I could have a much better quality of life here. Go to Mexico City. You'll meet a bunch of expats who are freaking happy 
And, and they're like, yeah, I, I get to live here for like a third of the price. And everything's clean. We got amazing medical care. We got amazing dental care. That's why people in the U.S., we literally have medical and dental tourism where people from the United States will go down to Mexico to get care because it's a fraction of the price and it's good. So keep that in mind. No one's coming here. No one's coming here because we're, we're, the, we're the bright light on the hill or the beacon on the hill, whatever that phrase is. No one's coming here for that. Most people know that the American dream is a total facade. And if it ever was a thing, it's been dead for years. They're coming here out of desperation. And I bet you if they could pick a different border, they freaking would. And it's it's just evil. What I mean, that, that's just like, like what Abbott is doing and, and what DeSantis does the same thing in Florida. It's just an evil thing to do. The Democrats just use it as a freaking talking point and photo op. They do nothing. And then the people try to actually help. That's the United States. That's a perfect snapshot of the United States. Republicans do something evil. Democrats do nothing. And then people try to help. It's a good snapshot of what the United States is especially politically. <sighs> so happy holidays. <laughs> happy freaking holidays. All right. Let me make a couple quick announcements. So first of all, um, you guys know that I am very passionate about the digital rights space. And I was on a campaign to fight for antitrust legislation. And unfortunately, we did not win. Uh, we were fighting to get the uh, two antitrust bills to a vote, and we did not get the promised vote. We have been promised a vote since about April. Chuck Schumer was able to successfully wait out the clock, and it, uh, it was a tough loss. But one of the things that I'm doing in conjunction with Fight for the Future is I'm building a creators network uh, around digital rights issues. Can we pull up the uh, Airtable, Colin? And uh, let's make sure we drop that link in the chat as well. So join the creatives, the Creators Network. Are you a content creator, YouTuber, Twitch streamer, TikToker? Join our new crew of content creators. We're building an alternative network of political pundits. We'll send you regular updates on the most pressing topics where creators can help. We want to hear from you about the issues you're most passionate about. So please fill this out. Please join this network. What we're trying to do is we're trying to connect digital rights issues with other happenings in the news to try to encourage people uh, to cover it more. You're under no obligation. It's just uh, a unique, curated, um, uh, curated uh, quaff of stories, <laughs> collection of stories uh, in your inbox. And we're going to hopefully connect like-minded creators. So so not, no matter what you do, whether you have a podcast, whether you're on TikTok, whether you just have a Twitter account, doesn't matter how big, doesn't matter how small, please do sign up and join our creators network. Uh, you're not obligated to do anything. You can kind of look over the stuff that I curate for you. If you don't like anything, just ignore it. If you like some of it, great, cover it if you want to. Uh, if you don't like any of it, that's fine too. Um, let me know. This is going to be an interactive thing. I'm going to be connecting with all the people who sign up and I'm going to be saying, hey, what would uh, encourage you to lend more of your voice and ears to digital rights issues? Tell me, help me learn. So I'm real excited about this project. So please, please sign up. I really want you to sign up uh, and we'll put that link in the chat 
and you can just go ahead and fill it out. Uh, it's uh, something coming up in 2023. And also, you know what else is coming up in 2023? Tour dates. I freaking got them. January 7th, I will be in San Diego, California. That's a free show, San Diego, so come on out. Great way to uh, get over your I'm broke from New Year's Eve blues. Come out to a free show on January 7th. That's a Saturday night. You can find all the information at my website, ronplacone.com. Uh, even though it's a free show, reservations are recommended. So, so make sure you check out that info. January 28th, I will be in Tucson, Arizona. That's a stand-up show and the premiere screening of my short film, Loner. Short film that I worked hard on. Can't wait for the world to see it. I think you all are going to love it. Use the promo code Lucy for discounted tickets. That's for a limited time only. So don't wait, Tucson. Use the promo code and get the tickets now. The longer you wait, well, eventually the early bird special will be over. So don't wait. Get them now. And February 10th, April 14th, May 12th, I'll be doing shows in Los Angeles, California at the Glendale Room. That's a string of shows working on my 2023 hour that I'm hoping to take to the UK this year. And I will have more tour dates soon. American Midwest, hold tight. UK, hold tight. And uh, keep in mind that when you join Status Coup, you are supporting on-the-ground journalism. So if you are able, please go to statuscoup.com slash join to become a member. Starts at 5 bucks a month. And uh, you get members-only phone calls, uh, or Zoom calls, rather. It's uh, it's an important thing. You support independent journalism. You send Status Lou on the beat. You send Jordan on the beat. You send Tina on the beat. Journalism is a public good. It costs resources. Uh, so if you are able, statuscoup.com slash join. Ronplacone.com for all of my tour dates, and I can't wait to see you on the road. And uh, I will see you all again on Thursday. This is Status Coup signing out.